The people of God are incessantly being attacked by the devil and his minions, whether it was in the old times with Pharaoh trying to kill off the newborn sons, whether it was Balaam trying to bring a curse. It has always been the attacks. And in the Christian church, they have continued and gotten even worse. And now one of the most insidious attacks that is going on is where people are saying that God is working through them by a means that is no longer present, and that is the use of tongues. So today we'd like you to join us as we discuss tongues in scripture and tongues used by the Pentecostals and show that there is a clear difference between what God has done and what the devil is now doing in the church. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on Sinners and Saints as we discuss the phenomena of tongues that is present in the church today, particularly the Pentecostal movement. And we've made a very bold assertion that this is not from God, that it is in fact against God to be insisting upon tongues being spoken of. And so what we'd like to discuss today is that Scripture, when it speaks of tongues, is not speaking about what takes place today but something that was particular for the first century church, which was necessary because it was the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, the thing that may really be jarring to you is the idea that it's satanic to speak in tongues, or at least the movement to do this. And, and I want to take one passage from Scripture to uh, sort of test this out. John says in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 6, he says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John uh, teaches the church here that there are two spirits fundamentally that are uh, exercising control and influence over people's minds, hearts, and actions. That's the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. That's basically it. He divides it up into just two distinct, neat categories. So the question is, how do we properly apply that to the phenomenon of so-called tongues today? I mean, the first thing that we're going to argue for, we'll get into it here in a little bit, is that the so-called tongues which are going on in so-called churches today are not the tongues of the New Testament. They're something else. So then we have to ask the question, well, what are they? Are they the devil taking over the minds and hearts of believers and producing in them some kind of ungodly ecstatic utterance? Or is it some emotional expression of these Christians and they've deceived themselves into thinking that it's the gift of tongues in the New Testament? I assume we'll get into that later, too. Well, we need to get into, first of all, what does the New Testament actually teach us about tongues? What is it that was actually occurring that is recorded for us in sacred scripture? And when we understand that, then I think we'll be in a much better position to evaluate what is going on today. Well, let me just start maybe by giving a, a, sh a short definition of tongues. And, and I would say, based upon the New Testament evidence, that tongues is a proclamation of the mighty redemptive acts of God in a foreign language not native to the speaker. One thing I would like to say to sort of shore that up a little bit, it's not merely preaching, but it is divine special revelation about God's mighty redemptive acts. 
It is important to think about what we are saying. The New Testament teaches that tongues is not simply that you are able to speak another language. It is that through what God is doing in the individual speaking in tongues, we are able to see prophecy. We are able to see God speaking and actually revealing Himself in it. So it's not babble for the individual. It is for the church, and it was meant to be a public thing that would benefit the church by teaching her something. Well, and if you want to just sort of maybe take a moment to lay out the argument here, I think one thing that's very key in the definition that I just gave, and that is that it is a communication of the gospel in a foreign language. Very important to nail this down, because when you hear people talking about tongues today— Generally, the perception is that tongues is just some sort of um, babble. It, it, is, it is not uh, governed by any of the normal uh, ways in which a language is governed, grammar and syntax and the intention of the speaker, but it's just loose tongue, uh, babbling about whatever, and nobody can really discern it, and then that's why you need a person on the other end who has the so-called a gift of interpretation, who is able to run that through their little filter and somehow uh, come out with, uh, Jesus said, buy a, a brand new Mercedes or something. Um, that's not what tongues ever meant. It cannot be justified from Scripture. And I also would include this, that the original people, the original Pentecostals, who were expecting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the second Pentecost and the uh, whole uh, speaking in tongues movement, were teaching before Tongues were even manifested by Agnes Osman in the very first day of the 20th century. Charles Parham was teaching that tongues was a communication of the gospel in a foreign language. This is very important to consider because this idea of language is part of what God tells is going to happen when he comes in judgment. That foreign language is going to be a sign to his people that something radical is taking place, that he is now manifesting his displeasure with the people. Now, I want to take a moment here to lay out the, the reason for why we say it's a foreign language. Uh, first of all, if you turn to Acts 2, it's pretty clear here that what you have are a bunch of foreigners at Pentecost. You don't just have all people who speak Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. Acts 2.5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now how many languages might that have been? Well, the scripture tells us. It says that there were Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them telling in their own tongues. That's a lot of people. Now, to be fair, when the Bible uses all-inclusive language like every tongue under heaven, that doesn't mean that, you know, if there was a such a thing as a tribe speaking Swahili then that they necessarily had to have been there. The idea is that a significant group of people who would represent a significant portion of nations surrounding Jerusalem and so forth were there in attendance uh, at this time at the Jewish feast, and they were witnesses to Pentecost. And not only that, they heard people speaking to them in their own language. Now the question is, what would be the significance of this? Is this simply 
that God is trying to make himself more available in communication, or is there more to it from the prophecies that we have from the Old Testament? Was there something involved that God wanted to accomplish? Yeah, and obviously there's a logistical need for interpreters. If you have the nations at your doorstep, you're launching a movement to begin the Christian church, and and all you have is is a... pitiful little band of of Jewish-speaking people, you're going to need more than that to reach the nations. So, in a sense, a logistical need was being met. God pours out tongues at Pentecost, the nations are at the doorstep, and he gives them the ability to supernaturally communicate the message of the gospel in a foreign language which was not native to their own, and the people who heard that understood it was their own language, and they said, wow, they're talking to us. Now, there's even more, though, because throughout the ministry of Christ, which we see recorded in the Gospels, we're told again and again, this was in order to fulfill the prophecy, and then it'll go on to quote something from the prophets well, or from Moses yeah. or, the, or the Psalms. And, and, and that's what's fascinating here. Luke gives us, in my view, uh, very intentionally a framework for understanding how to evaluate these tongues. He says in Acts 2.4, he says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. Now, the key phrase here in this verse is the word other tongues there. If you look that up in the Greek and you do a word search on that, you can go back to the Old Testament translation of Hebrew, which is done in Greek, the Septuagint, and you will see that that word is used in Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, verse 11 says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Now, this word is so rare, so rare an occurrence. It's very clear that Luke is intentionally referencing this text. But you say, what does it have to do with Acts 2 and Pentecost and speaking in tongues? What has to do with this? Because Luke interprets the speaking of the gospel in a language to the other people who are there, who are not Jewish speakers or Aramaic speakers. They heard the gospel preached in their own language. Luke uses this word in advance of narrating that to say, this is what is going on. Isaiah 28.11 is reaching climactic fulfillment here in the very heart of Judaism in Jerusalem at the very temple. Here you have, in its courts, here you have Pentecost occurring, and here is God speaking to his people, his covenant people, in a foreign language, just as he had hundreds of years earlier with the Babylonian invaders. And what you need to realize is those Babylonian invaders were not saying, untie my bow tie uh, rapidly for 20 minutes in a, in a row, or should about a Hyundai. They were speaking <laughs> Babylonian, okay? They were speaking a real language. The problem was it was judgment against them against Israel because they didn't understand Babylonian. And this is the key to understanding this, is that God has always told his people, as long as you worship me, you will dwell securely in the land, you will eat your own crops, you will be able to see your daughters and your sons be married, and you will get to enjoy your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, and you will be a lender to the nations, and you will become wealthy because I will bless you in the land. But if you disobey, I will send to you a people who speak a language you do not understand. And when you hear that in Jerusalem, know that I have judged you. I have lost my patience, and now it's over. Exactly. God says in Deuteronomy 28, 49, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation 
whose language you do not understand. If you want to understand tongues, don't turn to Acts 2. Turn to the law. Turn to Deuteronomy 28, the beginning of a proper framework for understanding the phenomena of tongues is the law. Then from there, you have a series of Old Testament passages where the prophets will bring judgment or woes of judgment or oracles of judgment against uh, Judah or northern Israel or whatever, saying, watch out, this is going to happen. And in a few different places in these prophets, you will have references to this particular uh, curse of the covenant. The New Testament was a remarkable thing to have written. And living in the era in which the apostles lived would have been a very strange thing because here you have 1,500 years of Judaism and you've had the temple now for centuries and the sacrifices, the Aaronic priesthood. And to say that God is now doing away with all this and establishing a new covenant with a new priesthood with no more physical sacrifices to be offered was radical. And therefore, tongues were given as a confirming sign of this to show that, yes, the old covenant is fading away. It is done. It was imperfect. And now the new has come. And therefore, out of necessity for the people to understand these things, the apostles had to preach the gospel and God had to testify that their word was true. And they were given the power to perform many miracles, but they were also given tongues. And where the apostles preached is where tongues were present to show that the judgment had come and that the old covenant was done away with and the new has been inaugurated, but in a remarkable way, far beyond anything that they expected. The curse of the Tower of Babel was reversed. Now, instead of the people not understanding one another, they're all understanding the same gospel spoken by the same God. Many things were happening, and it's in this era that it was necessary that the tongues be present. Yeah, and it's interesting where you have this intertwining of the... um the, the prophecy about judgment being brought upon God's people as a way of sobering them up, threatening them, warning them, and calling them back to repentance. You have the intertwined with even indications of what the uh, the meaning of tongues were. I'm thinking of Joel 2.28 and following that that Luke himself quotes. That passage is in the context of, of God talking about judgment that he's about to rain down. For instance, he says, uh, verse 30 of Joel 2, I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, But just prior to that, Joel, in, in verse 28, talks about what God's going to do in conjunction with that. It says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on the flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall speak in tongues. No, that's not what it says. Joel says, and your, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And Luke quotes that very prophecy in Acts 2, and he uses that prophecy to describe or to interpret what's going on in their midst in Acts 2, in Pentecost, here are all these people sitting around speaking in tongues. They don't know what's going on. And here Peter stands up and explains the whole phenomenon of tongues, what's going on, the gospel being communicated, that God uh, is using divine special revelation and a divine special means to communicate his gospel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2 and says, This tongue speaking is the prophesying which God foretold of through his prophet Joel hundreds of years prior, which would come in conjunction with judgment coming upon his old covenant people, Israel. Fascinating how these things are tied up then. It's a foreign language 
but it is also special revelation from God, divine special revelation, not just a mere conversing about Christ. It is an inspired conversing or proclaiming of Christ from one person to the other, except in this case, the person speaking is speaking a foreign language which is not native to him, which he's never studied or learned before, and he's communicating perfectly or flawlessly to the person who's hearing it in their own tongue. That's right. what biblical tongues is. Okay, fine. So basically, let's say that you guys have convinced us that um, the tongues that were pouring forth at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 were the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 28 and other places where God is demonstrating to Israel that he is breaking off the old covenant with them and that he is uh, giving his kingdom to the multinational church. And it's a sign of judgment against Israel. It's a sign of the transition in the covenant fine. But when I'm reading through the New Testament, there are other places that talk about tongues, not just Acts 2 and on throughout you know, the history of redemption in Acts, but I find like 1 Corinthians 14, and you're saying that you know, tongues are this, this foreign language. But if I'm reading the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, when I see that, I mean, it's interesting to me that the function of tongues there is not God, is not to man word, but God word. In other words, You've defined tongues as speech of the revelation of God's mysteries in a foreign language mm-hmm. that obviously benefits the men who speak that foreign language. But here, tongues is referred to as something that I'm speaking to God. And, you know, this is something that you hear a lot in modern uh, yeah. Pentecostal things. Like, my, my tongue speaking is something that I, the Spirit fills me, and I have this ecstatic utterance toward God, and it's something that is fulfilling spiritual yeah it's worship it's viewed as worship language sort of like some sort of angelic speak so almost. what do we what do we think about i mean are, well, do we agree okay, that this is different than no what? we don't agree in fact uh what you're seeing here is no different than what you have in a number of instances of scripture think of the psalter god gave 150 psalms which are directed to him but yet the word is given to us for our profit for our instruction you have numerous places in scripture where Scripture is about speaking to God and exalting God, but it's certainly a message to his people. And so it's binding, it's authoritative, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's a resource for doctrine. So to, to, to all of a sudden cut this little verse out and make it uh, you know, prove your case doesn't really work in light of so many other texts. But the other thing you have to see here is that the word mystery is not some angel, uh, sort of angelic worship language, uh, secret decoder ring that you kind of need in order to figure out and to learn how to talk. Mysteries in Scripture throughout the New Testament is very, very, very consistently used to refer to the message of redemption about Christ. Two things that we should look at here. One of them is the history of tongues. What we have are letters and documents, sermons from the early church, and that first post-apostolic generation, the ones who lived after the apostles died, all understood that the apostleship has not continued. They, they were very clear that what they were writing was in light of what was already revealed. And one of the things that they did was also they never spoke of tongues. In fact, it's not until the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, that you get a sect called the Montanists who start developing, once again, this idea of why are tongues missing in the church? 
and they start saying, no, tongues should return to the church. So you basically had a block of time where the Christian church is not speaking in tongues. And you have a group saying, well, we need to bring it back. So from history, we know the tongues died out with that first generation because it was no longer necessary and it was trying to be brought back in. And this modern thing, once again, it was an acknowledgement. Tongues is not being spoken in the Christian church, and we think it needs to come back, and God will bring it back as a miracle in order to usher in the millennium through the preaching to the nations. Well, so here's yeah. the history that says it's, it wasn't in the church but most this, of its But this history. line of argument also reflects uh, the frustration of a failed bad argument. Basically what they're saying, okay, you've proven to us from Scripture that, <laughs> that tongues, biblically speaking, is this. It is a communication, a divine special communication of the gospel in a foreign language not native to the reader. And I don't like that because how I view tongues is tongues to me is some emotional, cathartic experience where I get to release my anxiety to God. Yeah, but you know, they but, conveniently also ignore the context of 1 Corinthians 14 because Paul goes on to, to really directly connect the tongues of, in First Corinthians 14 that he's talking about with the tongues that are in Acts 2, because in verse 20, he says, Brothers, I want you to understand. And then he quotes that passage from Isaiah 28 again. And verse 22 says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So basically he's saying, no, this is not a different kind of tongues that uh, we're talking about here in First Corinthians 14 that I'm writing to you about. Well, Tongues have always yeah. been the same thing. But he also quotes from directly again from Isaiah 28:11 in verse 21. He says, "In the law," and you think, "Oh, where's this in the law?" Well, it's he's referring to Old Testament scripture. He's saying in the law it says this: "By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people." And the and and that's all it is is a verbatim quote from Isaiah 28. So so what this does is it binds the experience of tongues together in both passages in Acts 2, where this this word is used to give a framework for understanding what's going on. It binds that together with 1 Corinthians 14, which is a good 30 years later probably. And he's saying they're, they're both the same thing. There's, there's nothing different going on here. Tongues are tongues. Now, people get hung up in 1 Corinthians 14 on verse 4. And this is this one phrase that I hear used over and over again to defend the idea that the tongues are different in 1 Corinthians 14, and they're really for self-edification. Now, we've already said, look, even in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul directly connects or identifies the tongues there with the tongues in Acts 2, so it doesn't fly anyway. But just so you have a way of understanding verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now, what can that mean? Well, I just want you to look back to verse 2. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. So which is it? Does the scripture contradict itself? In other words, when I speak in a tongue, are are men benefiting from it or not? Well, apparently, according to verse two, they don't benefit from it because they're they're not. It's not intelligible to them. But then verse four says, "Well, they are being edified." He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. The point there is that when the believers in Corinth are speaking in tongues, they personally are not understanding them and therefore are not benefiting from them. They are being edified in that they are being used by God to give this special sign of judgment on the Old Covenant nation of Israel, an affirmation that God is in the midst of the people, but they are not understanding anything about the tongue. The tongue itself is not benefiting them personally. So you people that are saying you're speaking so in some kind of tongues and that God is using that to edify you. No, you're not. Because tongues is a foreign language that if 
you were speaking it, you wouldn't understand and therefore it wouldn't edify you. The only way it would edify you is by recognizing that God is using you to reveal the the truths of the faith which had not yet been revealed to people in your culture. And that doesn't happen today. That's what was going on at the time of the apostles in the early church. Sociologically also, studies have been done and people basically rearrange syllables of the language with which they speak. They're familiar, the language they speak. And so if this is, in fact, supposed to be some sort of heavenly angelic tongue that is being spoken of to God, it should still have the rules of grammar that should be identifiable to an observer, which are not present. And the other thing is that they should all sound the same. So Chinese Christians in China and American Christians in America and, you know, Christians who speak in Africa, their own languages— it should all still sound exactly the same no matter where you record these people saying it, but it doesn't. It's always the native speaker's syllables rearranged into something unintelligible, which tells us it is not a heavenly language from God. It is babble and chatter and not useful, whatever emotional release you may gain from it. And not only is it not some sort of a heavenly language either, it's something that's common and almost in in. In a wide array of, of religions throughout the history of the world, this is nothing new, unique to Christianity or whatever, where people all of a sudden God uses the great gift to communicate with and to build people up and make sure they had extra spiritual grace somehow if they had this gift. I mean, it's very, very common in religions in general. So we should be very careful and wary of just using this indiscriminately now. And saying, well, I, I just have this emotional release, my tongue unlooses and is unleashed, and I, and I just start babbling. Well, be very careful with that idea, because a lot of people in religions do that also. And you have to ask the question, what good is that doing them, and what purpose is it for? Yeah, do you hear what John's saying? Listen, near Eastern religions, New Age religions, all talk about disengaging your mind and allowing your subconscious to kind of overtake you where you don't think at all about what you're doing, you just experience, and you just go with the flow. And some of you are calling that tongues. That is not tongues in the New Testament at all, whatsoever. And we are called always to be sober-minded on the other hand. So even if something that you're doing in private, you know, emoting before the Lord, you don't want to do that in absence of, of guarding your mind and your heart. You want to be thinking about what's going on. You don't want to be taken over by any spirit or whatever, because there's only two spirits, as John said earlier. There's the Holy Spirit, and then there's the spirit of Antichrist, Satan, who is in the world. And you have to be very careful that we do not just give ourselves over to powers that are outside of us. Now, I think the theological argument is clearly established, but nonetheless, there's an emotional draw to use of tongues that still br brings many people to Pentecostal churches. So we'd like to address that for a moment, too. Consider that... We are called to worship the one true God. And the fact that you may have gone to churches that are dead because they're so doctrinally precise that they never engage the emotions, they never engage the whole person, does not now give you warrant to escape and go somewhere where only your emotions are engaged. Rather, what you must do is seek out where the church truly preaches the gospel and understands its application to the whole person, where you are actually going beyond simply learning information to actually connecting with God through the means of grace that he has appointed. And that is probably the best remedy to get you away from this need for tongues for an emotional release in your Christian life. Yeah, let's smack down our own here for a minute. Uh, can, and I'm talking about when I say our own 
conservative Presbyterian Reform types, who, as Moses alluded to, are very doctrinally precise, and everything is orderly and decent and everything, and nobody would even consider letting out a peep if it wasn't at the right precise moment, uh, and the way that they had been doing it for the last 150 years in, in service. Um, but one thing that ha- that has tended to do is lead to a very rationalistic, cold, uh, seemingly fruitless uh, form of worship and piety. And so a lot of people, when they began to see this working its way out in the church, uh, they got sick and tired of no real experiences. What they wanted is they wanted God. They wanted to feel him, taste him, sense him, hear him, something. And in a sense... I don't think we have to say, well, there's no sense in which New Testament Christians can't have an experience of God. The sin in this is finding an experience of God that is not mediated through Jesus Christ. Uh, you Trust me, you don't want unmediated access to God. It'll kill you in a heartbeat. What you want is mediated access through Jesus Christ to God. And, and, and and fortunately for us and for our blessing, God's provided that in our worship services in the New Testament. Talking about mediated access in our worship services in the New Covenant era, what we're talking about is God giving us Christ through the preaching of the Word and God giving us Christ through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You can go back and hear our show a couple weeks ago on the Lord's Supper on the website. But... What we want people to understand is that our contact with heaven comes through these very plain, ordinary, not very outwardly exciting means. Through bread and wine, through the hearing of a man proclaiming the word, a man who has been trained and sent and ordained by God for that purpose. And you can can talk all you want about the feeling that you get from... Uh, what you're calling tongues and prophecy, but where the real action is and where the real contact with heaven is, the close, mediated, heavenly contact through Christ is in the preaching of his word and in the partaking of the sacraments. So then what we want our hearers to think about is that we do not believe Scripture supports the modern Pentecostal interpretation of tongues. And in fact, we believe that it comes from the spirit of the Antichrist, that it is not directing you to God, but directing you to self. And so we would call upon you to give this up and to actually seek God where he is to be found, and that is where the church preaches the word of God rightly. And there do allow your emotions to actually be engaged in worship. So not so do not be simply a passive listener, but be convicted by the reading of the law. Let the reality that you are a sinner overwhelm you. And then see the grace of God displayed through Jesus Christ and let that uplift you. And in this, find your joy. In this, find all the comfort and love that you seek. Thank you for joining us today on Sinners and Saints, and we hope to see you soon in church. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.